Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, on May 11, 1745, the British Army went into battle against the Army of France near the village of Fontenoy in what is now Belgium. 15,000 British soldiers marched forward bearing not only their muskets, but the reputation that they had gained in the continental campaigns of John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough. But Marlborough had by then been dead for nearly 25 years, and in the meantime, the British army had not adapted or altered. The result was a humiliating defeat, with, by the end of that fight, 6,000 of those 15,000 British soldiers either killed or wounded. A subsequent result was a long process of reform, the creation of new forms of knowledge and new approaches that had to be conceived, innovated upon, and then deployed in the face of organizational tradition, institutional resistance, and personal suspicion of change. My guest Hugh Davies describes this long process of reform in his new book, The Wandering Army, The Campaigns That Transform the British Way of War. It is not only a book about the British Army, the Second Hundred Years' War, the Enlightenment, the Military Enlightenment, and the long 18th century, but also one about creating new institutional cultures, change management, and the reform of complex organizations amidst difficult circumstances. Hugh J. Davis is reader in the early modern military history at King's College, London. His previous books include Wellington's Wars, The Making of a Military Genius, and Spying for Wellington, British Military Intelligence in the Peninsular War. Hugh Davis, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. It's delightful to be here. So the British Army in 1745, um, how did it stack up with its continental rivals? Uh, or how did leaders of the British Army imagine that it stacked up with its continental rivals? Well, it's a really good question. Um, the, the sort of traditional um, uh, reputational view of the British Army in the in the 18th century and into the 19th century is informed very much by its defeats in the American Revolutionary War and um, the early defeats of the French of the French Revolutionary War. What? Um, uh, but this this is contrasted with the British view of themselves in the middle of the 18th century, which was of a a very superior fighting force, a an infantry fighting force that was. Uh, second to none, um, and this was a reputation based on its successes under the command of the Duke of Marlborough during the War of Spanish Succession, a war that had effectively ended in 1711, um, though it continued until 1714, um, but, uh, but the sort of major major military campaigning finished in 1711. Um, and uh, uh, repeatedly under Marlborough's uh, campaign, uh, under Marlborough's command, uh, these uh, the the British Army had achieved um, uh, high levels of, su- of success, had developed a uh, a superior form of tactical drill, and had proved uh, much better on the battlefield at the use of the musket. They managed to maintain a, a, a superior rate of fire to their adversaries. Um, and it's this reputation that the British sort of carried through into the into the uh, middle of the 18th century, uh, when war broke out with France again in 1742. Uh, uh, Britain sent its army to the to the European continent in the belief that its superior uh, infantry skills and fighting talents would be able to overcome the, uh, their adversaries. Um, the reality was that uh, the British Army had had little practice uh, in the 30 years uh, after uh, uh, Marlborough's, um, after the end of the, of the War of Spanish Succession. Um, there had been various small-scale um, imperial conflicts, but the main British Army hadn't been deployed on that. So the British Army had rested substantially on its laurels and uh, had focused very much on um, on its own history, not not looked to be informed by uh, European continental military developments. 
um, and had ignored the fact that their principal adversary is the French, um, as well as other uh, European powers, had been engaged in a series of smaller wars, notably for the French wars um, uh, who had been involved with or had sent forces to fight alongside the Austrians and uh, the Russians in wars against the Ottoman Empire. Um, and this had given, given European um, forces something of a different um, view of warfare. And so the British had not informed themselves on that on that basis. They had not kept up to date with the um, latest military thinking. And so was when when the British Army went to war with France and fought the Battle of Fontenoy in May uh, 17, uh, 1745, um, it would be found distinctly wanting um, and, and suffered, a, a, as you said, a, a calamitous defeat. So this is a book in large part about the military enlightenment. Um, Listeners will recall a conversation, a recent conversation with Alex Mikabarija about uh, Kutuzov, uh, the great field marshal of the Russian army, and uh, his story is substantially one of the military enlightenment and the Russian army, the Imperial Russian army. This is the military enlightenment and the British army. Uh, it's remarkable to me how different the processes of this thing called military enlightenment are in these two different cultures, these very different cultures of the British Army and the Imperial Russian Army. What is your base definition of the military enlightenment? And then how does it first come to Britain? Uh, well, the military enlightenment is effectively the, um, the, the sort of... Um, the military embodiment of the parallel enlightenment that's going on in the 18th century with scientific advances, um, developments in, in, in uh, notions of humanity, sensibility, um, and these inform the way in which um, humans learn, in which they think about learning, which they think about the world, the, the experience, their experiences of the world, and how that then translates into into knowledge, um, and so you get a, a a military form of that, and it manifests in various different ways. Um, the sort of, I suppose, the most tangible version of the military enlightenment is increasing levels of com of compassion and humanity on the battlefield. It sounds almost. Um, uh, almost uh, an oxymoron to, to to use those those phrases when uh, the battlefields of the 18th century were famously bloody and and, and and brutal places to be. But though the fighting of war was brutal and often um, uh, fought deliberately in a brutal fashion, there was a, an increased level of compassion and humanity for uh, soldiers who were injured. Uh, and wounded on the battlefield, uh, prisoners of war would be treated um, uh, uh, more compassionately, um, and uh, and there was also greater ideas of of, of restraint. Um, so these uh, so these ideas become very prevalent in Europe, in particular, and and certainly in France. There's there's various different uh, elements of it, as, as you said, with Alex Mikabritz's work on Kutsov, um, a book which I recently uh, read myself um it, it's and it's a fantastic biography um uh, illustrating that um quite often it's it's uh, the product of individual interest in 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 um in in enlightenment principles um uh for the british I, my sense was never that there was a deliberate interest in um in enlightenment principles um, certainly amongst the amongst the, uh, the British Army. Um, uh, so alongside the sort of ideas of compassion, there was also greater engagement with new ways of thinking about war um, and uh, an increased engagement with reading material and uh, and uh, innovative ideas about how to how to fight. Uh, often informed by how to be more compassionate on on, on the battlefield. Um, the British don't engage in that in a deliberate fashion. Um, it is very much foisted upon them 
as a result of the defeats that they faced uh, in Font- uh, Font- Fontenoy in, um, in, in 1745, in uh, battles such as Preston Pans, the whole experience of the Jacobite Rebellion in, in Scotland, um, and the, uh, the, the after effects of, 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 of that campaign, and also of uh, later, slightly later defeats. This is not a sort of flick a switch and suddenly everyone's thinking about the Enlightenment. It takes mm-hmm. it takes a few uh, a few years for this to become um, more ingrained. But um, I think the the a, a really massive turning point um, uh, besides um, Fontenoy is the is the defeat the British suffer on the banks of the Monongahela in in the Ohio Valley in, in 1755, um, where a much larger regular British force is, is almost completely wiped out by an irregular unit of French and, in, and uh, Native American warriors. Um, and uh, it becomes clear, uh, the sort of cumulative evidence it, uh, over, over a number of years, it becomes clear that the British need to think about war in a different way, um, and so they start to turn to uh, continental treatises such as those written by Maurice de Saxe, the, the victor at Font- Fontenoy, um, Turpin de Crisset, um, and um, Fekier and Follard, various authors who become very popular in the in the, uh, the mid to late eighteenth century. They 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 get a, a readership in in Britain as well. And so all of these ideas gradually start to, t- to take uh, to take hold. And it's why I characterize this as an accidental military enlightenment, because there isn't the deliberate decision, as it were. And I don't really think there's a deliberate decision in the, in the, in the other armies either. But it is certainly something that happens accidentally as a result of external factors, rather than an internal um, uh, process of reform, um, uh, and and so you get this this uh, the, the development of, of enlightenment thinking very gradually over the course of the of the uh, second half of the eighteenth century, and also importantly very unevenly because not everyone agrees with the idea, and the principles are not applied in all circumstances. Um, we can we can talk a bit a bit more about that, I suppose. And it's it's a very big stage, and it's a the British Army is a small place. Everyone seems to know each other, but still there are a lot of actors involved, mm-hmm. and they are occupying very different places, sometimes simultaneously. And it takes a while for say people to learn in India what's been going on in America, and then decide or not or decide not to decide to apply it to their own military life. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is uh, one of the other sort of definitive elements of the, of the British Army in comparison to uh, the French and, and other European adversaries and, and allies is that the British Army is spread very thinly across across the world. So you've got forces in in America, you've got forces in in Europe, you've got forces in in um, in, in Britain itself, in Ireland. And you've got forces in in India, and as the century progresses, you also have forces deployed to Australia. You've got forces in in Africa. Um, you've got forces in in South America, and so it's a really diffuse um, uh, army. Um, and it, 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 there is obviously a time delay. It takes time for the ideas to get get transferred and exchanged, but. The dispersal of forces around the world creates a circulation of knowledge, and this is the other sort of driving factor of Britain's ac- uh, accidental military enlightenment, because without that, the movement uh, movement of personnel around the world, you wouldn't have the circulation of of, of military knowledge. Um, for uh, there's a lot of work written about about knowledge and how it's exchanged in other. In other fields, uh, whether it's diplomatic um, knowledge, um, colonial administrative knowledge, scientific knowledge, um, uh, uh, mercantile knowledge, 
um, the, uh, all of the all of these different aspects have their own networks of correspondence of engagement, and it creates a circulation of knowledge. And the military is the same. You've got you've got these these um, military networks that allow for this this knowledge to be exchanged around the world and and that that exchange takes place in a variety of formats sometimes it's written down and sent in correspondence um, sometimes it's written down in diaries and shared in that format sometimes it's physically taken by the person who possesses the knowledge as they move from one theater to the uh, to the next um, and uh, sometimes it is transferred um, non in a non-written format and so that's the bit that we don't really have a great deal of evidence of um, because people don't tend to make notes of the conversations they've had on a, on a regular basis but there's no doubt in my mind and I found evidence that it took place though I can't find evidence that it took place all the time that conversations took place between um, uh, veterans of, of one war as they now take command of newly minted offices in a, in a new war. So at the beginning of the French Revolutionary War, for example, um, you've got veterans of the Seven Years' War and the American Revolutionary War um, uh, commanding um, new units and they're, uh, they're exchanging their knowledge in conversation with uh, uh, with those, uh, uh, those officers. And so it it, it, it the, the, the circulation of, of knowledge happens in that format as well, um, and it's it's very much not a deliberate act. Um, uh, so again, an, another sort of reason why I decided to term it the accidental military enlightenment. So, so this is a it's a big book, it's a big apple. So I thought we would take some bites on it by looking at um, biographies of certain people whose names. Uh, are known uh, even to a wider audience and some of whose names are unknown even to, uh, I, I suspect, uh, specialist military historians. So, and some people like this chap, John Campbell, the Earl of Loudoun, whose influence and importance has perhaps been overlooked. So let's begin with him. Um, what does uh, John Campbell learn in Scotland and then in the early years of the uh, Seven Years' War in North America? So uh, Loudon is an is a interesting uh, uh, fellow. He is um, one of uh, uh, the Duke of Cumberland's sort of inner circle, is one of his protégés. The Duke of Cumberland is the captain general of the British Army in the um, War of Austrian Succession. Um, he gets the sobriquet the butcher, uh, uh, butcher Cumberland or the Butcher of Culloden after the way in which he... Um, it launched a series of punitive operations against um, the Scots after the victory at Culloden in April 1746. Um, and he's got a circle of officers around him uh, who he um, is, uh, is, is, is uh, 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 bestowing his patronage on and, and promoting and, um, and giving uh, uh, good jobs to and Loudon is one of those in 1740 late 1745 into 1746 Loudon had been sent to Scotland to recruit um, a second battalion of Highland soldiers in order to prosecute a, uh, a, 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 sort of a campaign of um, suppression against the uh, the rebellious Jacobites um, and when that breaks out into a full-scale rebellion, then Loudon is effectively um, uh, caught in Scotland as the, uh, as, the, as the Jacobite forces start to coalesce. What, uh, uh, what Loudon learns in Scotland, though I'm not sure he necessarily appreciates it immediately in Scotland, is the need to balance a regular form of, of, of training um, uh, where soldiers are, are, are given all of the information they need, the, the training they need in order to operate on the battlefield. Um, it has a, a regular infantry understand you know, why a line is important, why you know, how to translate, translate that into a column, how to translate that into a square. So you get all the drill practice in the way, how to, how to fire a musket, how to ensure that the musket is fired and reloaded appropriately so that you can keep at a, up a continuous rate of fire. Um, and also discipline, make sure that you don't fire too soon and things like that. He knows that you've got to balance those, those sorts of regular training, all infantrymen must have, with more irregular practices. 
um, irre- irregular practices are, are needed in in terrain in the terrain that's somewhat unique to Scotland. Um, uh, uh, very broken terrain, very harsh terrain in the Highlands um, uh, and, and even in the in some of the lowlands of Scotland. It can be a very hilly um, and very difficult um, uh, terrain on which to campaign in a regular fashion. So he he starts to envisage a, a soldier that's trained um, in both practices, and you need a certain degree of intelligence. Somebody who's, who's going to be able to make a judgment on on which is the most appropriate um uh format to use in any particular circumstance and he sort of learns the need for that i'm not sure he necessarily achieves that when he's in scotland as things move very fast um uh, though uh, he is able to u- make use of, of forces effectively um uh, uh, in in the campaign that um, that cumberland uh, orchestrates and that results in 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 the Battle of Culloden. Um, in the wake of of the victory in Scotland, um, the British army uh, returns to the continent. There are a series of, of, of further battles against the French, which which are effectively incl- inconclusive, and the War of Austrian Succession effectively peters peters out. Um, but you get um, a, a short period of peace, which ends. Uh, dramatically in 1754, really, in North America, um, as tensions begin to escalate amongst the uh, uh, the French and the and the British in in the uh, in the sort of back country of the 13 colonies, in particular in Pennsylvania, Virginia, um, upstate New York, and so forth, um, and uh, there is, I think. Um, quite a lot of parallels between uh, uh, Loudon's experience in Scotland and what he will go on to experience in 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 uh, North America so what happens is in the uh, in the early stages of what becomes the French and Indian War um, uh, the the British suffer this calamitous defeat at uh, at Monongahela in um, uh, uh, July 1755 and uh, this res- leaves British strategy in uh, in North America in tatters. Um, the French are starting to encircle them. Um, there's great worry that they're going to be able to connect the waterways of the St. Lawrence in Canada and the, and the Mississippi and Louisiana through the various waterways um, through the Ohio Valley and the, and the Great Lakes. And if they are able to achieve that, and build a series of connecting forts, then affect then really the, the British would be sort of hemmed in, and and this will cause uh, uh, significant uh, problems for the for the um, uh, uh, the thirteen colonies. And so the British need to react to that. All the while, they've suffered these these quite substantial um, defeats. Um, and colonial unity is 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 gone. The 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 the, the, uh, uh, the sub- substantial fractures between between the big the big colonies and uh, the big colonial governments, and so um, the um, Cumberland decides that Loudon is the man to to, to sort this out, um, and so uh, 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 Loudon is sent to take command of. The, of the British forces in North America, and he. Uh, so I suppose the, the great for me the parallel with someone who listeners might be a bit more familiar with is is Claude Auchinleck in the Second World War, who was responsible for rebuilding uh, the British Army in uh, in the Middle East and North Africa uh, in 1940 and 1941. Um, and is replaced by Bernard Montgomery, um, who goes on to take that army to substantial victories over the Germans. Um, and Loudon does the same thing for the British uh, uh, in in uh, seventeen between seventeen fifty six and seventeen fifty seven. Uh, so he does a number of things. Um, he uh, improves colonial unity, um, ensures that there's there's a, a lot of um, 
much more cooperation between between the colonial governments um, uh, that they will provide a certain number of uh, of uh, um, troops to to fight the French and Indian War, and he uh, uh, it, it tries to improve um, British strategy, um, although he's not entirely successful in that. And he also improves the training and organization of the British Army, which is the thing we're most interested in. So he employs a lot of the lessons he learns in Scotland and uh, uh, initially tries to employ native, friendly Native American forces to provide this, this irregular complement to British regular forces. Um, and he then um, uh, also... Uh, uh, that doesn't work. So he, he, he turns to the rangers, which have been operating in, in, in North America since the 17th century, and provide a really good intelligence force and a, and a really and a really good um, means of uh, uh, harassing um, uh, uh, enemy uh, enemy troop movements. But at the same time, it's it's almost a law to it's uh, to itself, and so. Um, he then decides to incorporate light infantry units into the into the regular order of battle of the British Army, um, and uh, uh, a lot of the sort of lessons that he learned from Scotland he directly uh, applies in North America, in, in, including employing officers with particular experience of Scotland in order to um, to to uh, bring those lessons to bear. And what this means is that you've got a combination of forces that the British are able to use. Um, uh, regularly trained soldiers uh, who by 1757, 1758 are very, very well trained, but also irregular forces that are able to operate more effectively in the, in the close terrain, the wooded terrain of North America. And this uh, allows the British to develop a, 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 high, a high degree of, of flexibility and, and eventually success. I, I want to underline something. Um, this is a, uh, a debate that will go on for 50 years is um, rather specialist troops versus uh, regular soldiers who are trained in a wide variety of, of skills. Is, is that, would that be correct to say that this, this is going to go on into the Peninsular War? Yes. So this is not the end of the, of the story. It's, it's employed very successfully by the, by the British during the French and Indian War, um, uh, but is seen to be um, of relevance only for North America, so isn't going to be employed elsewhere. So the, so the British... Yeah. don't transfer those lessons in, on an institutional basis from North America to Europe or, or anywhere else. It's it, Rather than institutions, it's the individuals that take that knowledge. Um, and so that provides the, yeah. the, the, the flow of knowledge uh, across time as well as space. And where I think it makes your book is so fascinating for people with uh, I, who who might have little interest in military history, uh, how organizations reform themselves or how they preserve or discard memories of success and failure. Um, this is also happening not just in Loudon's head. He's not just pushing this down from above. It's bubbling up from below, from the most unlikely places. I mean, here's 24, 25-year-old George Washington with no experience of the world whatsoever. Um uh, barely any, and yet he has this idea, this conception from the very beginning of the formation of the Virginia Regiment, that the Virginia Regiment should be able to fight as rangers, but also in the line, because he wants them, he's obsessed with them becoming a, a regiment of the British Army, a line regiment of the British Army, and yet he wants them to be these sorts of, and we'll use this phrase again, these universal soldiers, yes. um, and he's not the only one. There are British officers with the same ambition. Uh, absolutely. So the uh, the term "the universal soldier" is it, uh, gets coined a little bit later in the century, but the but it effectively means a soldier that's going to be able to adapt to uh, to very different circumstances and and uh, and more importantly, know when to adapt. I think that's the crucial difference: mm -hmm. is that you can have soldiers trained in a variety of fighting methods, but they also need to know when it is appropriate to employ those 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 different methods and that's what becomes quite a difficult thing for the british and, and other armies as well to to um instill because what 
because there's there's this prevailing notion, an institutional notion that a soldier shouldn't really be thinking. He should just be doing. He should be following orders and should be um, making the uh, you know making no decisions for themselves. Uh, should be uh, just executing the orders of, of of their officers, and that's that's yeah, absolutely the, the, the sort of core of why um, in in regular warfare um, any army that has cl- a clear disciplinary focus like that will will, will usually prevail. But there are circumstances in which a, a, de- a degree of adaptability is needed, and there's a, a view. Um, uh, among certain officers of the British Army, William Howe is one of them. He, he commands the light infantry at the, at, the, at the Battle of Quebec in 1759, and also famously goes on to command the British Army at the beginning of, of the, in the first couple of years of the uh, of the American Revolutionary War. But um, he's of the view that actually you need to have these that all soldiers need to be able to do that, whereas that's not really going to be possible because you're not going to be able to find soldiers. Who are capable of making those adaptations? That are, are, you're not going to find enough enough of them, basically. So you're going to have to have a, a certain uh, elite units that are going to be able to do that. And this is where the light infantry comes from. Um, and this is a, a debate that takes place over the course of, as you say, the, the entire second half of the 18th century, well into the Napoleonic Wars. And it is one that is not. It doesn't go in a straight line. Um, it, it is. It is <laughs> very much. Uh, you know, two steps forward, one step back in in the course of the of of the various campaigns that the British the British fight, and and this point about the difference between institutions or how different institutions learn is is really important because it's uh, the the institution, uh, particularly the, the army, uh, the British army, and I think pretty much any army is uh, tends to be intensely conservative. It will always defer to the tried and tested method um, and it'll defer to the tried and tested method of its most likely adversary and its most likely adversary is France and if you're going to face France on the continent on the European continent you're going to be fighting a regular a battle with uh, with massed ranks of infantry where firepower is the most important thing that's that's what the British perceive to be the most likely um, um, uh, 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 for a uh, sort of war, war to take place, so you need to train your force in order to meet the most likely scenario. Yet there are going to be other scenarios that are less likely, but might also uh, crop up. Um, uh, and the w- the way in which the British are able to adapt to those scenarios is not institutional memory or institutional resilience. It is the it is the individual memory of the officers who serve um, uh, within the army. So that's why you get a series of officers like, well, James Wolfe was the first that popped into my mind, but also William Howe, uh, Henry Clinton, um, Charles Cornwallis, uh, Ralph Abercrombie, John Moore, and on to Arthur Wellesley. They carry that knowledge with them across several campaigns, and they're able to apply the lessons that they've learned individually in different circumstances, and then translate that across. Uh, so you get these very these two very different approaches: the institutional approach, which often is the the two steps forward, one step back, and the individual who are able to take the next step forward a lot quicker than pre- was previously the case. If that makes sense, so they're they're able to uh, to adapt and and evolve on a, a, a on a much more um, a, a, a much quicker and more effective basis. And the individual level accounts also for development of doctrine of, of develop of even the idea of what warfare is for or how warfare is to be successfully implemented and how an object is to be achieved. And you make that very clear in comparing the aforementioned James Wolfe with Jeffrey Amherst which, you know, a casual reader about the French and Indian War might think of them as intimate uh, comrades and learning, uh, one learning from the other. But in fact, they have very different conceptions of how warfare is to be executed and what the object of warfare is. Yes, indeed. And, and, um, and so this is a sort of par- parallel um, 
debate that's taking place. We've we've talked quite extensively about the, the sort of the development of the notion of a universal soldier, but you've also got um, a, a, a very um, heated and and um, uh, frankly, until the Napoleonic Wars, an inconclusive debate about what the what the the British Army or what what, a, what an army is for, um, and the majority of soldiers and officers uh, are trained and and educated and brought up with the notion that the principal objective of an army is to, and I quote a former British chief of the defense staff here, close with and kill the Queen's, or as the case was then, King's enemies. Um, And that's a very sort of tactical uh, um, and uh, uh, defeat slash victory orientated um, uh, outlook. and the notion that actually the main objective of, a, of an army is to fight a battle um, and that that battle should be decisive and that miraculously, even though actually this hardly ever happens, that that battle will then dis- decisively conclude a war. Um, and, you know, the number of times that happens can be counted on the fingers of one hand pretty much. But yet there's a prevailing yep. view that if you just fight a decisive battle, you seek a decisive battle and you 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 pin your enemy down then you will you will you know end the war there and then um and and so i think i think it's fair to say the majority of of, of soldiers and officers view have that view of the of the of the british army i think it prevails elsewhere as well but certainly the the prevailing view of the british army that that the the quest for decisive battle um, is is the sort of main should be the main focus. There is a countervailing view, which is that actually an army is uh, an army should be prepared to fight a battle, but that the battle itself should only be fought if there are decisive political advantages to be to be obtained in in fighting it. Um, and uh, uh, so, actually, the when viewed that way, the main the main use of an army is not fighting a battle but in maneuvering in order to to put an adversary in a position whereby either they you know just sort of paraphrase Sun Tzu abandon the will to fight or where they when they do fight it is on such disadvantageous terms that that defeat is inevitable for them um and so you get a very if i might this is where this is where, um, so this is, you know, for the, for kids who want to hear about thrilling uh, battles in the French and Indian War, I'm, I'm speaking to myself at age 10, uh, Forbes' campaign across Pennsylvania is very boring. Oh, yes. It builds a road <laughs> and a bunch of forts. So what? But the fact is, is that uh, with, with the exception of the uh, intemperance and ill-advised expedition of James Grant, uh-huh. um he manages to take all of Pennsylvania with a very a minimal loss of life and casualties. And Jeffrey Amherst does the same to Montreal. Yeah. Um, and yet they're not exactly, that's not exactly the stuff of romantic legend. It just happens to be effective and very economical in terms of lives. Yeah, uh, yes, indeed. I mean, but for uh, the Forbes campaign, uh, you know, juxtapose with the, the, the uh, 1755 campaign. So the objective of James of John Forbes in 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 1758 is to capture Fort Duquesne, which is modern day Pittsburgh, um, uh, and uh, this is the same objective that, that Edward Braddock has in 1755, and he's defeated the Monongahela um, uh, in July 1755. Uh, Braddock makes a a big run for it, you know. It's a very slow, a very slow march to begin with, and he realizes he needs to get it, get a move on. So he creates a flying column. It's a, there's a big, big charge towards the fort, and as they as they cross the Monongahela, they're ambushed and and uh, and uh, and you know, decisively defeated. Forbes, by contrast, it uh, doesn't just build a road; he builds depots. He's, he, he he pursues. Uh, yeah, uh, 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 one of the few examples of a British soldier actually saying explicitly, I'm employing the plan laid down for me by Turpin de Crisset in his Essay sur la Guerre. Um, and 
uh, you know, so he's, he's, he's seeing a campaign unfolding in the same way that you would a seed. So you you move forward a certain amount, you build, you know, building your road as you do. You pause, you build your depots, you bring up your supplies, and then you progress to the next. You know, you build the next parallel, as it were. You you carry on, pause, build up your supplies, carry on. It takes months, you know, and it's and you know nothing happens. Um, uh, uh, they did uh, the the uh, uh, intemperate um, uh, expedition by James Grant, as you as you mentioned, is. Uh, meant to be a reconnaissance of Fort Duquesne. Grant gets a bit ahead of himself and is uh, uh, basically his force is, is defeated by a sortie of, uh, by the French out of out of Duquesne. But it's not the entire British force, so the the, the British are able to survive uh, survive that that um, setback and um, a combination of factors. You know the British successes in the north at um, Niagara um, and um, uh, uh, elsewhere in the Ohio Valley mean that that with as Forbes is approaching Duquesne, Duquesne's position is rendered untenable. Untenable, so the French abandon it, and it's exactly the sort of I- ideal of you know maneuvering your en- your adversary into a position where they they can't they can't win. So they either uh, fight a, a, a battle in an attempt to impose costs, or they, or they withdraw. And the French choose choose to to withdraw. Uh, Amherst, by contrast, I mean, it, it, Wolfe gets all of the all of the attention for the extremely daring and um, highly, uh, you know, successful and interesting battle of. Um, at Quebec, the siege and, and, and battle of Quebec in 1759, which results in in Wolfe's death at the point of victory. Amherst, Amherst orchestrates an operation that is effectively a three pronged descent on Montreal: one from the south up from Lake George, one from the uh, from the west uh, from um, uh, starting at Oswego and, and and Niagara, and the other from from Quebec, and he orchestrates this in a period when you know communication is as fast as a man on a horse, and in North America that is not very fast. Um, and they <laughs> arrive within days of each other, and again the French are in no position to fight when Montreal is surrounded. And um, and and they surrender without without firing a, a, a bullet, and you know the, so he it's it's the the movement of the chess pieces on the board that Amherst concentrates uh, on, on achieving, and it's a very different approach to to Wolf, who is much more interested in fighting the decisive battle, um, and if and indeed in at Quebec. At one point, he thinks he's not going to be able to, to fight the battle, so he's consider, he considers withdrawal. Um, but eventually, he gets the opportunity to do that and, and fights and achieves an outstanding victory, but it's not decisive. Um, capturing Quebec does not end the war in 1759. Uh, it's only when Montreal falls um, in 1760 that that, that happens. So the next two sort of stages uh, for the development of the British Army are American India. Um, I would be happy to spend the next two hours uh, talking about the American Revolution. Uh, you, we have a lot to talk about, but in, your, in the interest of listeners and yourself, we won't. Uh, but you have a very, in many ways, your, um, your summary of the American Revolution would be it's that the British commanders were divided between those who believed in maneuver and those who believed in decisive battle, and there was never a clear strategic concept of which which should prevail. Would that, that be would that be fair? That would be fair. Added to that is the is the governmental long screwdriver where poor poor resourcing. Um, uh, a, a failure of the British government to fully understand what it's what's going on in North America, and also from 1777, the realization that North America is not the most important thing in in the world for the British. And uh, when the French enter the war uh, as a result of of the American victory at Saratoga, the 
the the British the British realised that you know India, the Sugar Islands, and the West Indies are much more important economic um, uh, uh, um, colonies than than the thirteen colonies. So so in the pecking order they get reduced reduced down so they don't get all the resources that that are needed so there is there is poor strategy on the british part as well uh from a governmental level and there's also poor strategy employed in north america by the british officers in charge but so yes in summary what you said is is dead on and, and yet um it is amazing to see how many of these um well, I mean, Charles Cornwallis in, in the best tradition of the British Army is rewarded for defeat, uh, becomes a commander in India. But there are lots of people who sort of s- escape notice. I'm thinking of, of Lord Rawdon, the, fir- the future Marcus of Moira, who will be, he'll be Viceroy of India eventually himself and uh, defeat the Gurkhas. Um, mm-hmm. He's a, a colonel. There's a lot of colonels who end up becoming generals who have fought in the British Army in North America. And a lot of them end up in India. Uh, Archibald Campbell, who I'm thinking a lot about lately because he was very successful in Georgia in 1779. Um, and so they're combining their American experience with their Indian experience and further transforming this mil- this accidental enlightenment in the British Army. Mm-hmm. And you see, you see this in um, when Cornwallis becomes Governor General and Commander-in-Chief of the British Army in, in um, India. He um, His principal adversary... Um, is the uh, tip is Tipu Sultan of Mysore. Mysore is a is a a, 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 a quite wealthy milita- militarily um, strong state in in South India. Um, that uh, is uh, uh, sympathetic to the French, um, but deeply mistrustful and and. And concerned that British about British expansionism in India, um, so it poses a, an almost constant threat to to the British presence in in South India, and by extension with their various alliances with other states in India, to the the whole of the British position in India. So, so Cornwallis is very, very concerned that he's going to have to. Do something about Mysore, and in 1790, war breaks out, and he launches a series of campaigns um, against against Mysore. The objective of which is the island fortress of Seringapatam, which is on an island in the middle of the River Kovri in 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 the middle of Mysore. So it it sounds like it, an island might be something to do with the sea. It's not it's right in the middle of India. It's in the middle of a river. Um, and he, uh, the, the various officers under his command, William Meadows, who um, uh, had fought at mm. Bunker Hill and went on to fight in the West Indies in the American Revolution, um, uh, and uh, uh, another chap, George Harris, again, uh, uh, a veteran of Bunker Hill and the West Indies. And in fact, George Harris is memorable because he's, he, he suffers a head injury at Bunker Hill which is uh, only only relieved by trepanning, as in he has a hole bored into his skull in order to relieve the, the pressure created by uh, by a, a bleeding on the brain. Um, and um, as he's recovering, he actually gets the opportunity to, through the use of a mirror to be able to see his own brain, um, which is one of the more sort of <laughs> memorable um, uh, excerpts uh, from a from an officer, who, and I thought I'd include that because it'd be easy to sort of recollect. Oh, so this is someone who fought at Bunk Hill, and now he's fighting in the Mysore Wars in India under Cornwallis. So you've got a lot of soldiers who and officers who fought in North America, and they go on to fight in in India. And Cornwallis is is repeatedly saying to them, "Look, we're going to." You know, you, uh, if you if you pursue this line, we're going to be defeated because you're um, you're doing you're employing the same approach that we did unsuccessfully in in America, um, and we need to have concentration of forces. Very, uh, you know, 
Cornwallis is defeated in 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 the Southern Colonies in in um, in 1780 and 81 because uh, he effectively divides his force. He's defeated essentially in detail before being comprehensively defeated at Yorktown, um, and and he's worried that the same thing is happening in in India, and um, and indeed that does that happens to Meadows um, in the first campaign against Mysore. Cornwallis then takes charge of the of the whole operation, uh, launches a much more concentrated um, uh, attack on on Mysore, which is uh, a, a sort of uh, amalgamation of the lessons you know it's it's this this it's reminiscent of his approach in in america but is a refined approach you know he's 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 still going for a swift decisive attack but one that's much more concentrated that isn't you know in in, in america he divides his force far too much in india he, he focuses very very decisively on his uh, on his object i mean this is the amazing thing about Cornwallis, which I hadn't really realized um, since I haven't read too anything, hardly anything about his post-American uh, uh, career, is that he did not, um, well, you know, in some ways he's unlike Napoleon in that he learns from failure. Um, and he doesn't, um, he, 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 learns, he learns from logistics, from, uh, from his tutor Nathaniel Green. <laughs> and he he applies um, he applies those lessons of uh, of failure uh, to India, mm-hmm. so that it's really interesting to me to to knowing something about the Southern campaigns to see how informed he is by his experience of the Southern campaigns to implement a different logistical system than had existed before in India. Something that then Arthur Wellesley uh, will pick up and learn a great deal from. Yes, and this is the, the, the this is the whole idea of of knowledge that's being circulated so you've got you've got lessons learned from the defeat in america adaptations made not just as a result of the influence of of, of green um who had you know demonstrated the importance of logistics in 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 the southern campaign but of how how to actually make use of the of the existing military labor market in in india as well something which the british hadn't been really engaging with properly until mm-hmm. until cornwallis does um and then those lessons are picked up and, so, as you say, and something by that's completely sorry i mean it's we should highlight that the military labor market in india is fascinating and something completely unlike either europe or america yes i mean we're, we're, we're talking about an existing um state and uh, sub-state infrastructure where um, soldiers, um, uh, uh, trained military personnel exist and are available to be hired for uh, and, and employed in, 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 in different circumstances. In different circumstances, and they uh, so it's not it makes it sound terribly mercenary. It's not mercenary, but there is if if the if Adequate pay isn't isn't um, prevailing. If there is uh, uh, a sense of greater benefit from to be obtained from another force, then you can, uh, i.e., loot or, uh, or or booty. Um, you're going to see um, forces transfer between between different um, uh, organizations and the British are very good at actually working out how to take control of that lib- uh, of that labor market, particularly in the sort of uh, you know 1790s and 1800s. And um, there's an excellent book by Randolph Randolph Cooper uh, on how the British actually succeed in in the battle for the for control of the of the military labor market in India, um, and it's something that. That doesn't, you know, is not uh, is not a thing that exists um, in in North America, um, where you have French cl- uh, colonials and French and British colonials and British colonials obtain independence in 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 uh, uh, in the seventeen seventies, um, but uh, in India it's it's a more of an imperial mindset in that you're imposed that the British are imposing. A, a control over an existing um, uh, uh, set of states um, and and the and the populations within that um, and and the, and the military labor market is is one aspect of that. 
which it takes the British a while to get to, to get um, to grips with, I think. Well, we're coming uh, near to the end of our time, uh, and so there's there's so much that we haven't uh, even touched on, but I think we should finish um, or penultimately fin- uh, touch on these uh, what you'd already referred to these uh, series of defeats by the army at the beginning of the Napoleonic Wars and how finally what we could call the American school or the Americo-Indian school, um, all these people, Wellesley, uh, the future Duke of Wellington, uh, Sir John Moore, who's been fought as early as 1779. I think he's at Penobscot Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, all these uh, people finally get into positions where they can begin to influence uh, the enlightenment and the reform of the British army. Yes. So, um, and this is where the institution versus the individual becomes a really important aspect of, 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 um, of military development. The, in the wake of defeat in North America, the institutional aspect takes precedence. So, you know, the, the lessons, that had been learned in North America and had proven, you know, to be a, a, you know, not particularly effective in North America, uh, were considered, un, you know, what well, no point in retaining this because we're not going to be fighting in North America anymore. So let's focus on on our traditional adversary. So the the institution reverts to to um, uh, its uh, uh, the, the tried and tested method, as I as I mentioned earlier on. And so when war breaks out with revolutionary France in, in the 1790s, the British army once again is, um, uh, uh, I mean, it's also worth bearing, bearing in mind that after the American Revolution, there had been you know, swinging cuts to the, to the size of the British army. Um, and so when, when the war breaks out, it's, the army is um, focused and organized around fighting a traditional war um of you know, using traditional tactics and it has to be very substantially augmented from a from basically a skeleton army and this uh this takes time uh, add to that the the extra layer of complexity is that the, the french revolutionaries don't fight a traditional war they 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 fight in a in a style which is much more reminiscent of of warfare in North America, uh, not because of the nature of the terrain in Europe or anything, but because uh, the the result of the French Revolution is that there are far fewer um, that the uh, the army is much less well trained than than it than the British had a right to expect, and so uh, it employs. Far greater numbers of of tirailleurs. Um, you get um, uh, chasseurs, you effectively irregular infantry, light infantry by another name, and and they they impose quite quite striking and and shocking defeats on on, on the British and the Austrians and the Prussians um, in uh, in the, in the early seventeen nineties, and so. It quickly becomes apparent that the British have to com- go back to the drawing board in order to work out how how to in- engage uh, uh, this this new type of adversary, um, and the same debate the same debates occur. It's not it's not um, it's not a case of oh, oh well we're facing a, f- a force that looks a bit like the force we used to face in North America, so let's let's get, dust off those old lessons. You still get this debate about about pursuing a decisive battle, about uh, 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 creating an army capable of manoeuvre, about creating an army composed of soldiers who are able to fight in different in different forms and formats, and that takes a number of years to actually become successful. And one of the sort of principal um, uh, uh, important elements of this is is actually the campaigns in the West Indies, where uh, which becomes something of a melting pot that and and the campaigns in Holland in 1799 and eventually India in 1801 sorry Egypt in 1801 um, something of a melting pot of different ideas about how these uh, wars 
uh, are going to are going to be fought and far greater use of irregular infantry, the, the employment of light infantry. Uh, and eventually, by the time Arthur Wellesley is fighting in the Peninsular War in Spain and Portugal, um, a, a force that uh, is capable of fighting decisive battles um, and fighting set-piece battles, but uh, will also look, in order to manoeuvre its adversary uh, out of positions where the adversary holds the strength into positions where they're, they're at a disadvantage. And so you see this happen in, by 1813, really you know, strikingly, the campaign of Victoria, um, where, where the British launch, under, under by then Wellington's command, a huge out, series of outflanking operations which pushed the British into a, uh, sorry, pushed the French into fighting a, um, a decisive battle at, uh, or near, nearly decisive battle at, at Victoria, um, in June 1813, um, and uh, 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 and effectively results in the liberation of of Spain um, later that year, um, and so you see all of these. I, I, I really see the Victoria campaign as the culmination of all of these experiences brought together. You and brought together not least because the soldiers and officers who are fighting it are themselves either the veterans of earlier campaigns or have been informed as a result of direct contact with vet with veterans of those campaigns um and so it, it really brings together all that all that knowledge and and expertise and then the war ends with napoleon in 1814 peace dividend huge swing in cuts again and the, the, the force that fights waterloo in 1815 is a shadow of that of of, of the force that Wellington commanded in in, in the Peninsular War, and the result is again a much more traditional battle. And the presumption of history as a result is that once again the traditional, you know, uh, battle of, of of wills on the on a on a on a, a set piece battle that will result in decisive victory will be, you know, that that's what needs to be trained for, and this becomes. You know the, the 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 sort of the main um, the, the the main focus of the British over the next well the next century. You you've you still got British officers yeah. using Waterloo as an example for campaign planning in in you know the early nineteen hundreds um, as as yeah. you know, well, just, just before got, the First we, World War. You've got volley fire sites on Lee Enfield. Um, that that yeah. tells you something about the conception yes. of battle. Uh, yeah. Um, so it it you know as I I think I said to you uh, when our previous attempt to record this I, I I really hope that that you're going to be that I'll I'll say that Hugh Davies is on the the business circuit uh, on giving TED talks because I'd rather have you give talks about change management and uh, adapting than lots of other people that um, do it uh, because <laughs> this is like real. Um, and it's based on actual historical information um, rather than uh, what the person was going to say anyway. Uh, it is perhaps a corollary to the laws of, of thermodynamics that uh, we forget uh, that there's degradation uh, as you track forward from Waterloo into Crimea in the conclusion. Um, one has this awful sense of how long it took as you have said, it's two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's three steps back and a, a half a step to the left or to the right. Um, this uneven, hard process of learning uh, is followed by a very, very easy and rapid process of forgetting. And it makes for a very melancholy mood by the time you finish the book. Mm. Well, I, so it's... I'm not sure it's necessarily forgetting. It's it's continued. It's it's failure to to continue to adapt. So the, the part of the problem for the British in the 19th century is that they don't want to leave behind the lessons that they've learned in the Napoleonic Wars. And one of the foremost military thinkers of the early 19th century in Britain, um, uh, um, William Napier, is a great proponent of the musket. He thinks the musket. Uh, you know, the British know how to use a musket. Um, they've proven decisively, you know, competent at using the muskets on the battlefield. So why on earth would we want to adopt a 
uh, a much more accurate weapon at longer range, such as the mini rifle uh, by the 1850s, because if we adopt that, then we're going to have to develop new tactics, which will not be as effective uh, at against our adversaries. So we may as well stick with what we know works. Um, And, you know, this, this view this very conservative view becomes really trend, entrenched in the British Army in the in the sort of 1830s, 40s, and 50s, um, and really prevents any sort of adaptation to the new technologies that are being are being developed. And, and once again, it's 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 the 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 push for change comes from the ground up rather than from the top down. And it's soldiers who are fighting at the Battle of the Alma in in 1854, who realize, why are we waiting for the, our adversary to be within 30 yards before we fire these very, very advanced weapons that actually, I, if I shoot now, I'll be able to hit him at 400 yards when he's not within range of his own weapon. So, um, and they, they figure this out in, of, of their own accord and, and, and make use of those weapons in that, in that way. But it, it takes a great deal of effort and time over the, remainder of the 19th century to really make those adaptations and in some ways it's almost cyclical the same problems that befell the british army after marlborough's campaigns befall the british army after the after the after waterloo after wellington's campaigns uh resting on laurels focusing on their on on their previous successes rather than learning from what else is going on on the continent and elsewhere in the world um the circulation of knowledge breaks down because even though uh, you know the British Army is dispersed more widely than ever, they tend to be dispersed for longer periods of time. So they become very effective at doing what they do in lo- in, 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 you know, in the region in which they're deployed. But that rarely gets transferred back to, to London or to other places in the British Army. Um, and so you get much less circulation of knowledge as, as a result. Um, and so I, it's not so much that the British Army don't become, or they forget all the lessons, it's that they forget how to learn and they forget how to adapt to the, the circumstances, that the, uh, the new circumstances of the, of the 19th century, which are principally the results of technological development. Well, we haven't even touched on Henry Lloyd or Henry Clinton or Thomas Mitchell or George Murray, but that will have to be it. And Henry Lloyd, by the way, is worth the price of the book. He's a fascinating character. I'm so glad that you wrote about him. Um, uh, I think there's, has there only been one biography of him written thus far? Anyway, uh, he's, well, he's fascinating. Yes. I mean, um, there's, there's, there's only one. There's no, he hasn't got many papers. He's got a, he's got a, a, you know, a huge tranche of publications but uh, his papers are very threadbare um and it's a very good biography the one that has yeah. been written by patrick spielman has been is, is very very good it's a very expensive yes. book yes it is but my guest today has been hugh davis he, davis he's author of the wandering army the campaigns that transformed the british way of war hugh thank you so much for being part of historically thinking al thank you very much i've really enjoyed talking to you today And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.